Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the CX Cast. Today, the first episode after you've met our new co host. Hey, Andrew, how's it going? Hello, Angelina. <laughs> Hello. And we have another recurring guest, which is very exciting. Gina Bowalker's coming back. You may remember she is an expert on all things DEI and customer experience. She's a principal analyst on the CX team. Hey, Gina. Hey, Angelina. Thanks for having me back. Of course. And Senem Bikili is also here. She is a UX researcher on the CX team and an expert on all things UX, but also does a lot of other topics with our CX team. Senem, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have both of you on. It's going to be overwhelming with all the expertise on this today. Why don't we start with just referencing that, Gina, last time you were on, which for those listening at home was episode 217, we talked about digital accessibility and we're back today to talk about a related but different topic. Can you tell us about the research you've been doing lately on inclusivity and design and and what's new? Sure. Yeah. So as you mentioned, last time I was here, I was talking about accessibility, which is a topic that I've been covering for Forrester since 2018. Now, accessibility focuses on one specific aspect of DEI, specifically making sure that all of your customers and all of your employees can get value out of an experience, regardless of their abilities. What we're talking about today as we begin discussing inclusive language is much broader than that. So you can think about ability as one important characteristic that we need to design for when we're discussing diversity, but there's many more as well. We're talking about everything from creating good experiences for people of different gender identities who speak different languages, um, who are of different races and ethnicities, different cultural backgrounds, and more and more. That's just a few examples. So this research that Senem and I have partnered on and will continue to be exploring over the next year is really looking at how do we consider all of those different dimensions of diversity when creating products, services, and experiences. And Senem, as an expert in usability testing, what's your interest in this research? As Gina just mentioned, we partnered on inclusive language research and there are more coming on in this area. One thing I really want to do in this research stream is that to bring the voice of customers into the inclusive research and inclusive design area. We'll actually probably mention that too, but we did usability tests with consumers for our inclusive language research. And I'm really hoping to do more and more studies like that to help us moving forward. So Gina, this is a long running topic for you. You've been following this for a few years. How's it going? What, what, what's the uptake like? Is it different? Is it the same? What's, what's going on? Andrea, I cautiously say that things are improving, but there's a lot more work to be done. And I'll explain what I mean by that. We are seeing more firms making diversity, equity, and inclusion a priority. And related to the research Senem and I do, we're also seeing a growing recognition that if you want to be serious about DEI, you have to think about DEI and your customer experience too, not just in terms of your internal workforce, you know, hiring practices, these typical focus areas that we see for DEI programs. So that's encouraging. I'm also encouraged that 
anytime I talk to the design community, you know, when I speak to heads of design at companies, when I attend design conferences as a field, they are very passionate about accessibility and more broadly, how do we think about inclusion in design? And so that's been encouraging. And we're often seeing these teams pushing that thinking and putting pressure on their leadership to make this more of a priority. So that's all the good stuff. Those are the good signals that we're seeing. The reason I say there's more work to be done is most companies still lack formal, rigorous practices for building inclusion into their design process. They often don't know where to start beyond recruiting more diverse perspectives for research, which is a very good place to begin. So, you know, when we took on this particular piece of research around inclusive language, we wanted to really get tactical about what are the practices to follow? What are the do's and don'ts when it comes to writing in an inclusive way for people of different gender identities, for example, to really give companies a blueprint to follow and to use as inspiration for creating their own internal practices. And language is particularly challenging because when you think about the number of people creating content that goes in front of your customers, I mean, we're often talking hundreds, if not thousands of individuals within an organization. Um, so it, it's not it's not an easy aspect of inclusive design, but a really important one to get right. And that's why we were really excited to take on this research. Yeah, sounds like it. I would ask, you mentioned inclusion, accessibility, you mentioned DEI. You've got a few different topics in there. I mean, I have to ask the business case on these things. Is it the same for all of them? Is it different? What would you tell people about that? Absolutely. I mean, when we think about accessibility, to be honest, most organizations, the, the business case focuses around legal risk, right? We've seen other companies be sued because their websites or mobile apps are not accessible. We don't want that to happen to us. And so that's often the driver that makes accessibility be prioritized and, and formal initiatives be created around it. With what we're talking about today and this broader notion of creating inclusive experiences, the business case looks very different from company to company. For example, I often speak with CX leaders who are attempting to tether this work to the company's commitment to DEI, saying we're not really committed to DEI if we're not thinking about DEI in our experiences, if we're not shipping accessible and inclusive experiences to our customers. And that can be a really effective way to make the business case. Other companies focus on this is an opportunity for us to differentiate and to tap into key markets like the LGBTQ plus community, like the community of people with disabilities who, by the way, have a lot of money to spend, but we have to make sure that we're not clearly excluding them in these experiences that we're putting out into the world. And then I would say lately, one particular lever that's coming up a lot is companies saying to me, our employees care about this. They want to work for organizations that value inclusion and actually put that value into practice because they personally value inclusion and want to work in an environment where they're able to, to really see that lived out in their day-to-day -day work. So we've got legal risk, we've got opportunity and growth. We've got employees that care about it, hiring that, that uh, folks that uh, care about it, potential new employees. That's a powerful multi-pronged sort of approach, it sounds like. Yeah, and, and we didn't even mention there also, this is about attracting and retaining 
customers. Forrester writes a lot about value-based consumers, for example. Many customers value inclusion, want to do business with organizations that don't just say they're committed to DEI, but actually reflect those commitments in their actions and their products and services. Okay. Awesome. I'm bought in. I know that you, you've written this report, Words Matter, Inclusive Experiences Start with Inclusive Language. And as with any awesome report that makes it easy for me to understand what we're supposed to be doing, there is a framework. And rather than just kind of listing off the framework, it would be great to hear some examples that bring to life how you recommend folks approach this. Do you mind kind of running us through a few examples that illustrate the best practices for inclusive language? Sure. So in the report, we focused on five best practices. And the first best practice we emphasized was to write and speak in plain language. Plain language means communicating in a simple and clear way. It is important that your audience understand the content the first time they read or hear it. So this is what plain language is for. And if the content is not clear enough for your audience, then we can't really talk about an inclusive experience there. One example for, would be colloquial language, which is often problematic because it doesn't translate well across geographies and their meaning may not be clear to everyone in the audience, non-native speakers, for instance. Plain language really helps including a diverse group of people. And I, I must also say that this is not only about making customers feel good about the experience. It's, it's, also, it's good for business and important for good CX. Customers are more likely to trust brands that communicate clearly. Actually, Gina and I tested this approach. We tested privacy policies of two banks that we anonymized in a usability test. One bank had policy written in plain language very clear to understand and consume. And the other bank had a privacy policy that included lots of legal terms and jargon. So we asked users to react to those policies. And 32 people joined from the US and UK. And almost everyone, 30 out of 32 participants, said they trust the bank with the um, plain privacy language more than the other bank. And their comments included things like bank A is much more transparent and honest. So they wanted to open an account with that bank in that instance. So that was for us really helpful to see the how plain language actually has clear impact on customer experience. It sounds like if you have plain, simpler language, it's easier for people to understand you tested that in using privacy policies just to create a comparison, but I, I would imagine that's true in other places as well. The privacy policies is just the test that you ran. Definitely. That's correct. It can be questions, informs, the landing page of a web website. It's, it's definitely true for all types of content. Yeah. Okay. And so it sounds like that's the first of the five, right? What else did you find? The second best practice is to avoid exclusionary words. Many words that we use in our data conversations are exclusionary and they reproduce implicit bias. For instance, words such as normal 
blind spot we, we use all the time, but they actually contribute to uh, stigmas around disabilities. There's also lots of a lot of discussion nowadays around software terms such as master and slave, whitelist, blacklist. Uh, these are words with racial overtones and exclusionary for this reason. A good practice in this sense is that some design systems recommend using primary and secondary for master and slave and blocked, allowed instead of whitelist and blacklist. Just these are a few examples we highlight in the report. I will admit in the report when I read the the normal and the blind spot and the you know average and you know other sorts of terms, I realized how many terms just have this baked in. And so you can see how all of it would kind of just just happen because that's just how people talk. There's historical reasons for all of those things. It was surprising how many were problematic. Yeah, I agree. I don't realize the bias because it's implicit and you don't even realize how it can help beyond the work that we do to the relationships we're trying to build in the work that we're doing. So a lot of opportunity there. Just one quick comment on this one as well. You know, some of the best practices, like the first one Senem talked about around plain language, you know, we acknowledge that is not easy. There's not a perfect blueprint for how your privacy policy should should read. So there is some work to be done based on established practices to get that part right. With the second one of about avoiding exclusionary terms. This is a good best practice maybe to start with because there's great guidance out there. Other companies have already done the research to identify specific terms that, you know, have negative historical connotations. For example, you don't have to sort that out on your own. We have a lot of the links to those resources in the report itself. It's just a matter of educating yourself on those words to avoid and the words to replace them with. To that end of avoiding things we don't need to do that will upset people, can you tell us about number three, which was around not getting the demographic data you don't need from people? <laughs> sure. Actually, that's a very important one, too. Third and also the fourth best practices are related. They are both about demographic questions. It is very common to ask questions about age, gender, race, and ethnicity in forms. And people may think that's a very standard approach. But many people are not comfortable answering those questions because they don't know the purpose, that they don't know how their information will be used. And oftentimes, the answer options are not inclusive. They provide very limited choices for gender questions. For example, we always see there are two options, male, female, and the third option, other. So everyone else is basically grouped under the third option, other, which is not an inclusive practice in that sense. That's why a good practice we discuss in the report is that if you need demographic questions, explain why and provide inclusive options. And inclusive options can take several forms, include multiple options, and make sure there is also a space to self-identify and to skip the question if, if that's what the user prefers. And I really want to emphasize the importance of this because this can have very serious consequences in healthcare, for instance. In the Recently in the news, we saw the discussions about the online registration forms for COVID vaccination. 
There were questions, there were demographic questions that were uh, required. Many people actually hesitated to register because they were not sure how their information about race and gender will be used. Actually, a U.S. pharmacy chain changed their uh, registration form after they got complaints from transgender individuals because they were asking a required question about um, sex assigned at birth. And after the complaints, complaints, they uh, just uh, removed the question and provided an explanation for why other demographic questions, including gender, are required in the form. This is, as I said, one example that shows how consequences can be really serious, like people can may choose not to register, although their health is at stake. Senem, you and I have done a lot of user testing and user observation research together. I will definitely say I read this one and I thought, of course, people want an explanation for how their data is going to be used. I mean, that the, the nice thing about some of these is that this is just how to get people to answer, you know, the forms and get the data and finish the registration process. So, I mean, from that perspective, you're basically describing a better, more thorough design process that's more user-centered. Yeah, exactly, Andrew. Senem, you talked about the four of the five that you found. And then for the last, we have to turn to our resident accessibility expert. Gina, could you share a little bit about the last of the best practices that, that you found in this research? Absolutely. So the, the fifth and final best practice was follow content accessibility best practices. And we decided to call this out as its own best practice because when it comes to accessibility, there are specific implications for your content, including implications for how you code your experiences. So what we mean by content accessibility best practices, that includes writing meaningful alternative text for every image that you have in your experience to ensure that people who are consuming your experience via an auditory means, for example, such as the blind person using a screen reader, understands the meaning you're trying to convey in your images. This also includes making sure that you have good, accurate captions for multimedia content, including videos, podcasts, et cetera, to ensure that people of different abilities are able to consume that content in their preferred format. And then lastly, making sure that your content is descriptive enough. So take something like a link name. We know that it's not a great usability best practice to have links called learn more or click here on your site. That really doesn't help anyone. But when it comes to people with disabilities who use assistive technologies, it becomes very important that those link names are specific because a person who is blind might be pulling up a list of all the links on your website out of context. We want to make sure they understand where those links will actually take them if they choose to activate them. So that's the last best practice is really applying this concept of inclusive language specifically to an accessibility context and following best practices from organizations like the W3C when it comes to content accessibility. You've outlined five ways to do this based on the, the research. A lot of them align with UX best practices, which is, is great. I, I have to ask, not everybody is in an organization that is maybe as bought into all this and, and not everybody is as adept at having this conversation. What are some ways that people in those organizations where it's not a natural topic can start to you know, work on this process, can start to improve how inclusive their language is, how inclusive their experiences are? What, how should they get going? Sure, I'll share a couple ideas, and, and I know Senem probably has some as well here. 
I would say one thing that you can begin doing immediately and CX professionals, I guarantee you have these examples and a customer verbatim is probably available to you, which is begin bringing forward some of the stories to illustrate what happens when customers feel excluded. Senem talked earlier about how we, you know, usability tested content and, you know, we heard quotes from consumers like this bank just doesn't seem trustworthy. They seem to be intentionally shady and vague for the banks that aren't writing in plain language. Those quotes are gold in terms of helping your leadership and your colleagues understand, look, when we don't follow these best practices, this is what happens. Com customers don't trust us. They don't want to proceed with opening the account with us. So finding some of those stories and examples and sharing those in a vivid way with your leadership and colleagues is one thing that you can do to start elevating this conversation. The second thing is just start normalizing some of these practices within your sphere of control. So for example, if you are a manager or director of a team, start modeling the things we just talked about in your team meetings. Are your meetings inclusive? Are you turning on live captions in Teams or WebEx to make sure all of your employees are having a good experience? Are you avoiding those colloquialisms, those figures of speech that Senna mentioned earlier don't translate well across cultures? If you're not doing that, there's a chance some of your employees aren't fully hearing the messages that you're trying to communicate. So beginning to model those behaviors within the areas that you do control, that often will get people asking questions like, oh, that was really interesting how you had live captioning running during the meeting. Can you show me how to do that and help me understand more about the best practices there. So that's another piece of advice that I would share. Sanem, what about you? I totally agree with you, Gina. And maybe I can just add this, which you mentioned also, but I, I do think it's important to show to your organization the best practices out there and how those are benefiting customers and businesses. It can be a verbatim from a customer, but also as someone doing research in this area, when I read the daily news, I, I see something. I know that there's, I see there is a conversation about inclusive inclusion and inclusive language already. So there are already news about how it is benefiting businesses and customers. And also, unfortunately, bad examples about how businesses are getting negative reactions from customers because their content is not inclusive. So that's why I think showing the good and the bad can help start the conversation in your organization. I love that. I love seeing the good and the bad and it's all kind of there and obvious, but we really need to show it to get the conversation started. Are there any other resources? Because I know that folks want to get smart on this, but also want to have that impartial third party input on this to get started. I can list a few and Gina, feel free to add if you have others. Our report, obviously, and plainlanguage.gov is a great place to look at for guidelines on plain language. And listeners may be wondering what words are exclusionary because we talked about avoiding exclusionary words. And there are various organizations with inclusive language guidelines. They include a list of words to avoid and also a list of preferred words to use. To name a few, I can say Adobe's design system, Spectrum is a good one. 
They provide guidance on which words to use. Another one could be Zendesk's design system. Again, very helpful because they also have a list of words. Another resource that I find useful is the Conscious Style Guide website. It's a great resource to learn more about inclusive language and why it matters. It provides a very broad perspective on the subject. There's also some great resources from the government, actually, because when you think about who does the government serve, we're talking about writing for all citizens, which is probably the ultimate challenge in inclusive design and inclusive language. So, for example, there's a digital agency out of the U.S. federal government called 18F, and they have a really nice content guide that includes general best practices for writing you know, good inclusive content, as well as, as Senem was mentioning, examples of common mistakes and, and words to replace with. This research is great. I think it's going to help a lot of people and be really valuable. What do you have planned next? Gina and I are working on our next report on diverse and inclusive design teams. We are both very excited about that. So our research thus far has focused on the design process, how to create inclusive experiences. With this research, we want to focus on design teams themselves. Our hypothesis is that inclusive experiences are products of inclusive and diverse design teams. So, so we, we are exploring this idea in this research and looking for examples of companies that have created diverse design teams and also developed ways of working that actually enable all those diverse perspectives in the team. I, I know Gina has more coming up, so I'll, I'll leave it to you, Gina. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're very excited about that piece of research, so stay tuned for that coming soon. Other things we're working on is taking this words matter, inclusive experiences start with inclusive language research and continuing to expand on it. For example, we're working on a assessment tool that will help guide a client to the best resources to begin improving inclusive language in their companies based on kind of their current state and what practices they already have in place. So that will be coming soon as well. And then after we wrap up this report on how to create diverse and inclusive design teams, we want to dig into the research competency of customer experience more and really dig into what does it look like to practice inclusive research beyond obvious things like making sure you're recruiting a diverse set of customers for your research activities. So that's an area we'll be looking into. If any listeners have a perspective on that, uh, definitely reach out to us because we, we'd love to chat with you about that more. So it sounds like a lot of plans for diversity, inclusion, accessibility, a lot more coming. Absolutely. And and one last one I'll mention too, going back to your question earlier, Andrew, about what if there's a listener who's in a company who's just not getting this, right? Um, they're not bought into it yet. We are also planning a report on the business impact of inclusive design because we want to help those clients, those organizations who need to model the impact, who need to have intelligent discussions around the ROI of investing in inclusive design practices. So that's on the research plan as well. Great. That's awesome. Folks can make the business case, build the diverse team and start getting more inclusive language, more inclusive design out there. So glad that Gina said you're able to join and lend your expertise on this and, and start to help folks build their own understanding of a whole universe of work to be done out there. Thanks to you both. Thanks, Gina. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having us. 
And send them thank you. Thank you. And everyone else, thanks for joining Andrew and I on the CX Cast. Until next time, bye for now.